Good morning. My name is Adam Rowe. I'm the student ministry pastor at the Wilmington campus, and it is my distinct pleasure to be here with you today. If I haven't met you before, feel free to come up and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. If you do know me, a quick update. I've had a major life change over the last few months, and that major life change goes by the name of Truman. (laughs) He's the cutest thing I've ever seen. It's, it's unbelievable. I just can't, I can't get over it. He's also the most exhausting thing I've ever seen. So if I fall asleep, just send somebody up to tap me and I'll, I'll keep going. But my wife Liz and I, here's the family shot. This is our first selfie. It's Truman's first selfie. But we have loved our time here over the last four and a half years and are excited about the future here. And I just want to say thank you for the chance to be a part of this incredible community called Grace Chapel. We love it. So the third day of battle. The third day of battle dawned hot and humid. The July sun rising over the green rolling hills of Pennsylvania, the air dripping of moisture and promising more heat to come. The bugles called us out of our tents and onto the parade ground and we nervously lined up, our boots and our buckles polished, our cartridge pouches filled and our rifles on our shoulders. At a shout, we were marched in ordered lines out to the field where they lined us up and we put our rifles into groups in front of us and took a seat as we waited for preparations to finish. The first cannon that went off at the far end of the line brought our attention back with startling speed. And we watched in awe as cannon after cannon after cannon went off down the line, each crash and each boom growing louder until you could feel the concussion of it in your chest when the battery in front of our unit went off. For 45 minutes, we watched this cannon barrage, and in the distance, we watched as small puffs of smoke marked explosions, and as other puffs of smoke marked opposing batteries, followed quickly by the crash and the roll of distant cannon fire. For 45 minutes, this line of blue-clad men sat on this green ridge in Pennsylvania, looking over the valley until they started to stir. And a voice to my left shouted, there they are. And another voice down to my right shouted, here they come. And a third voice shouted, this one with authority, on your feet, boys. And we stood up. We lined ourselves up, we grabbed our rifles, and every single eye was turned and every neck was craned towards the far wood line, trying to grab a glimpse of the thousands upon thousands of gray uniformed figures marching out of those woods through the smoke and straight at us. If you haven't figured it out yet, I was a Civil War reenactor. This is a picture of me in college. We got a chance to participate in the 140th anniversary of Gettysburg, and it was an incredible experience. And this is often my kind of fun fact. Like you have an event where you're getting to know people, everybody share a fun fact about yourself. And I'll use this one because it gets me a lot of questions. And the number one question by far is simple, and it's just this, why? And I think there's probably, there's a lot of reasons, probably more reasons than you have reenactors, but a few of them, I loved camping. I loved eating food cooked over a campfire. I loved hanging out around that campfire with other people that did, talking history or sports or politics or whatever in the evenings. I loved learning about history and getting a chance to kind of relive it and get a sense of what it felt like. But for a lot of us, there was an even greater reason, and it was simple as well. It was just the fact that for many, We don't want people to forget. At the end of the war, famous Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman said this. He said, I am tired and sick of war. 
Its glory is all moonshine. It is only those who've neither fired a shot nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded who cry aloud for blood, for vengeance, for desolation. And then that famous line, he said, war is hell. And yet 30 years later, the the mood of the entire country had changed. There was this fierce patriotism that had gripped us, and even our very idea of warfare had changed. There was this sense that, that war was something that we should pursue for its own sake, that it was the answer, that it was beneficial to us as a people, and it was worthy of pursuing because of itself. Led by leaders like Teddy Roosevelt, here's a a quote from him speaking to the Naval War College. He said, all the great and masterful races have been fighting races. And the minute that a race loses its hard fighting virtues, then no matter what else it may retain, no matter how skilled in commerce or finance and science or art, it has lost its proud right to stand among the equal of the best. Now, both of my grandfathers served in World War II, I've got a number of family members that have served or are currently serving in places, and I am fiercely proud of them. We live in a world that is broken, and we live in a world where these things are are at times necessary. But there is a drastic difference between fighting when it is necessary and it is put upon you and looking at war as a virtue in and of itself. And I found myself looking at this and thinking to myself, how in one generation did we go from saying war is hell still surrounded by tens of thousands of veterans to saying war is a virtue. I think the writer of Proverbs put it best, and he put it simply. He said, there's a path that seems right, or sorry, a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. So often, we as people, we find ourselves in this situation, running down this path, being told that this path is, is the good path, that this is where it will take us, and finding suffering and death and desolation at the other end. And not just, not just in the grand scheme, not just in the national or the world events, but I find even in my own personal life, I remember once holding a, a rope swing in my hand and looking at a boulder and thinking that looks about right and climbing up and all of my friends were behind me and only after I jumped did I think I probably should have walked it to the edge of the cliff to make sure. And that led to some pretty painful moments and was pretty close to leading to something worse. I remember an early romantic relationship where I lashed out in a way that to me felt right and it felt justified, but honestly, it led to suffering and struggle. And at the end of it all, when it was over the death of multiple friendships as it fractured our group. If our lives are truly, as we've been arguing in this series, if our lives are truly like a story, and that story is being led by the great storyteller, the question for us this morning is, how do we find those right paths, those paths that he has laid out for us that lead to life and abundant, not those paths that lead to death? Well, to quote Dr. Seuss, and I love this quote, sometimes the questions are complicated, but the answers are simple. And this morning, I think what we need to do is we need to ask the author, If there's a great storyteller, then he's the one we go to. He's the one we ask, like, where is this story actually going? Who am I in it? And what is my role to play in this story? We have to look for what he actually said, the quotation marks, the the places where he has given insight into who I am, into who you are, and into where this story is taking us. Uh, Quotation marks bring emphasis, they bring directness, they bring immediacy to a narrative. They tell us to pay attention because someone is speaking and they 
they show us the interpersonal dimension, that it's actually real people, somebody speaking to somebody else, and that these things are important. How remarkable, how remarkable that we have a God and we serve a God who actually speaks. The very first words of scripture are a quote, let there be light. Our story starts with a quote from God. How remarkable is it that we have a God who speaks not only to us, but about us? The trouble is at times it's difficult to hear that one voice from the cacophony of other voices. There are so many voices telling me who I am and where I should go and what my story is about and what path is right that sometimes it's tough for me to listen to that one true voice over here. So this morning before we continue, let's spend a moment in prayer and ask the great storyteller to come and teach us this morning as we look at the life of a man who seemed to have it all figured out. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the chance to take a breath and a pause and to ask you to come and speak to us. We thank you for the idea that that our lives are this story being told by you, that it has purpose and it has meaning and it has a narrative to it and you are the one orchestrating it and you've known it from the beginning. And so, Lord, this morning, my prayer is that your spirit would be heavy upon this room, that you would speak through me, that these would be your words and not mine, and you'd be preparing the heart of each and every person who hears this, that you would do a great work in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Pastor Brian took us through the story of Ruth. And Ruth ends with Ruth and Boaz getting married, and they have a son, and Naomi, the grandmother, is there holding the son, and this is what it says. It says, then Naomi took the child in her arms, and she cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David's the one that we're going to look at today. He is one of the most influential characters, definitely in the Old Testament, and I would say one of the most influential characters in all of Scripture. Yet, interestingly, the next time he's mentioned, he isn't even in the story yet, and he's not even mentioned by name. We follow into 1 Samuel, and what happens is you have the current king, Saul, who is having the kingdom, or at least the promise of his future kingdom, taken away from him by Samuel, who is the prophet. Saul has been doing things that he shouldn't. He has not been trusting God. He hasn't been walking the direction God has asked. And so God has told Samuel to tell him that your time as the king is limited. Here's what he says. Saul speaking, or Samuel speaking to Saul. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, immediately right here, this one phrase, a man after God's own heart, jumps out. I love, from from the time I was a little kid, I have loved this phrase because I have wanted desperately for this phrase to apply to me. I've wanted to know, like, Lord, will you tell me, am I a man after your own heart as well? And yet, I, I don't know about you, but often, most of the time, I just know, I know intrinsically that that cannot be true about me because unlike you, I know myself and I know myself well. I know my failings, I know my struggles, my selfishness, I know all of those things that are just in there that I wish that weren't, that I struggle with and I fight with, and I just know intrinsically there's no way that that can be true about me. Maybe David, but probably not me. And so I find myself posturing, 
I find myself play acting, pretending like I'm a man after God's own heart, hoping that you will think that I am. All the while with that small little voice worrying me in the back saying, they're gonna find out. They're gonna figure it out. They're gonna know and they're gonna see through it. But even crazier than that is the fact that I'm not just worried about you, I'm worried about God figuring it out. I like play act and I posture and I pretend as if I can somehow make God think better of me or trick him into thinking something about me that is not true. And all of this, this tumult in my soul, all of this coming out of one small phrase, this one insight into a character who hasn't even appeared yet. If I'm honest, I find myself identifying with King Saul at this point in the story. So Samuel is here, the prophet of Israel. He has spoken to Saul, and he is eventually sent to find this man after God's own heart. And he's sent to Jesse's house, Jesse, the grandson of Ruth. So let's move ahead with him. He gets to the house He says to Jesse, do you have sons? Can I see your sons? And Jesse says, yes. And he brings him son one and son two and son three, son four, son five, son six, son seven. Once he's through seven sons, Samuel, I'm sure, is getting tired of God saying, nope, that's not the right one. Nope, that's not the right one. So this is what he says. Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? All right, first off, can you imagine having seven sons and someone saying, is this it? (laughs) This is it? Lazy. So Jesse replies, they're still the youngest. He doesn't even say him by name. They're still the youngest, but he's out in the field watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. If it helps, you can just picture me. In this. All right. If that helps you to vision, kind of see this one. So As David stood there among his brothers, now put yourself in this moment, put yourself here, try to picture this, put yourself in David's head. As David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Continue putting yourself in David's shoes. Think about this moment for a second. David is the youngest of eight brothers. What does that mean? That means he's been picked on and beat on. And uh, I'm an older brother. I know what we do. He has been the forgotten one. He's the one that at some point somebody said, how about you run to the neighbor's house and say how long it takes? I'll time you. And he's like, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Like, he's the one, always the baby. He's the one always last in line. He's the one wearing not just hand-me-downs, but hand-me-downs, hand-me-downs. It wasn't his brother's. It was his brother's, brother's, brother's clothing that he is now in. At this moment, he is the forgotten one. Do we have anybody? I had, after the first hour, somebody came up and said, I'm number eight. Any, any number eights? My brother was number three, and he was the forgotten one, sometimes left behind when we'd go somewhere. I mean, at this moment, the prophet of the entire nation is in the house, and they're all going to have a meal with him, and Jesse's basically like, oh, yeah, there's the, what was his, what's his name? The, the little one the one out in the fields. And here comes Samuel in the midst of all of this, and he's looking for a man after God's own heart, and God brings him to you as David. I mean, what a moment. A prophet of God comes into town. He he anoints you with oil. He tells you what God thinks about you, and then he tells you what God plans for you. 
Wouldn't you love that moment? I would. I, like I said, I'm desperate at times for, for somebody to come along and tell me what the great storyteller, what God plans for me and what he thinks of me. And I find myself reading this story often and thinking, okay, David has it made. He has, he's heard from God. God has told him who he is and what he is about. The end, he's got it figured out. And yet if we look ahead into David's story, we know that that's not true at all. He had these amazing moments, incredible greatest king that Israel has had up until this moment. He led them into their golden period. He did incredible works for them. And yet he also had some unbelievable low moments. Deception, lust, adultery, murder. I mean, these incredible moments. And so I find myself sometimes reading this story and thinking to myself, like, really? Generations later, the apostle Paul writes, and he still calls him a man after God's own heart. And I find myself saying, how can that be? So I'd like to suggest to you something this morning. I would like to suggest that David was not a man after God's own heart because he had been such a good man. It was not because of what he had done or what he hadn't done. He was a man after God's own heart because God had declared it so. And that makes a huge difference. In the book of Romans chapter four, the apostle Paul explains the mystery this way. He starts with Abraham and he says, Abraham, humanly speaking, was the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. God counted him as righteous. Other translations say he credited him. But what it works out to is God is the one that said Abraham is right in God's eyes. And Paul moves on. He starts looking at, at, at others, including David, who are also counted righteous. This is what he says. He says, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared, I love this phrase, declared righteous without working for it. And here's David, he's quoting David now. Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what a joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. I mean, David knew better than most the joy in having God take your transgressions, take your sins and your failures, your mistakes, and having him take it and push it as far away from you as possible, as far as the east is from the west, and saying, you are a man after my own heart. You are righteous. He knew. And Paul closes the chapter this way. He said, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, here it is again, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, I love this, this is beautiful. It wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Here's my question for you this morning. What if, what if following God 
is less about what I am doing or I am not doing, and it is more about trusting in what God has already done in me. What if it is less about my daily failures or my daily successes, and it is more about trusting in the word of God, in what he has said about me, in his quotes, in who he says I am, and what he has already done in me? Because according to scripture, I am righteous. And I am not righteous because of what I have done. I am righteous because of who I know. That's an amen moment if you want it. (laughs) I am not righteous because of what I've done. I am righteous because of who I know. And the book of Ezekiel, yes, thank you, amen. (laughs) The book of Ezekiel goes further. I love this, it's beautiful. It says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. The well-punctuated life listens to the voice of God and trusts what he says. So hear me today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in him, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have been given a new heart. God has declared you righteous. He has said it is so, and it is so. This is the beauty of the gospel. Pastor Brian recently had our whole staff go through uh, an exercise with a question, just a simple question of who am I? For a few weeks, we worked through this. We kind of thought about it, and then we wrote about it. And, and at the end of it, we were supposed to put it all down on a three-by-five card. And it, it wasn't necessarily for anybody else. It was for our own benefit. But it, it fits so well, I'm going to read it to you this morning. Here's mine. I am Adam Rowe, beloved son not only of my parents, but of God Almighty. I have been declared righteous through the blood of Jesus and being made more into the likeness of Jesus daily. And although I make mistakes routinely, At my core, I am a holy saint in the eyes of my Father. I've been called into and prepared for ministry from a young age, and while it's difficult, I know it's what I was meant to do. God brought us to Grace Chapel four and a half years ago, and I am here doing what he called me to until he says otherwise. Now, I didn't put that quote up on the screen because honestly, even reading it out loud in a setting like this makes me feel a bit like a megalomaniac. And I'm not, I promise. You can tell me afterwards what you think. But the the problem is, for me, the lies are so powerful. There are so many of them, and I'm constantly hearing them, that I'm weak, that I'm a coward, that I'm ineffectual, that I'm a failure, that I'm stupid, that I'm broken, that I'm worthless. And I hear them so often, and these paths are laid out for me so often that I begin to think that this is the right path. This has to be it. I've heard it so much. And so I need to counter those lies with something even more powerful. I need to counter that with the truth of what God has said is true about me. Amen. I was talking with Pastor Tom Boyclair a few weeks ago, kind of mixed into all of this stuff from our Foxborough campus, and he was sharing about a men's group that he met with at a past church, and they opened every meeting with this refrain. I love it. I am a holy, righteous, redeemed son of God, and it is a pleasure for you to know me. (laughs) It is a pleasure for you to know me. I love that. It feels uncomfortable because we never say it, but it forces you to think. So turn to your neighbor, wherever you're at, introduce yourself, and tell them. Right now, do it. Tell them it's a pleasure for them to know you. 
you'll find yourself saying it all week. You'll be at work, oh, hi, it's a pleasure to know me. I mean, uh. <laughs> but it's true. This is what God has said. Here, here's the truth for those of us that follow Jesus Christ. Daniel was a man after God's own heart, and if you are a follower of Christ, so are you. So are you. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, something changes. God brings about a fundamental deep change at your deepest core, in your deepest recess, in your heart. God has put a new heart in there, a tender, loving heart. He has put his spirit in there, a spirit that leads us into righteousness and leads us into the things that he has brought us to. And when you find yourself later on today or tomorrow, sometime this week, at a crossroad, needing to make a decision about something and go, is it this path or is it this path? If we will just pause, if we will pray, and with the Spirit as our empowerment, ask, what we find is that we're surprised that it's God's path that brings us the most joy. These other paths, they, they may look good, but there's something deep inside that has changed. And all of a sudden we start thinking, ah, oh, I don't know if I like that as much. And this other thing for some reason is bringing me all this joy. And it is not from you. It is from what God has done in you and is doing in you day by day. We may struggle with our old self. In fact, we will. We're going to struggle. We've, we've worn paths that are, that are deep and thick that we know. We have old habits and things. But even when you make a mistake, even when you fail or follow one of those dead paths, it does not change who you are. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are righteous. And it is a pleasure for me to know you. This isn't some self-help, fake it till you make it thing. This is declaring out loud what is already true about me and already true about you because of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're gonna do this week. We've been talking a lot about journaling and, and kind of spending time with this throughout the week. And so this week on your way out, you're gonna get a bookmark. And it has five different verses on it, five out of dozens and dozens that are found in scripture where God is speaking truth to you and to me about who we are. I've been justified, declared righteous. I am complete in Christ. I am confident that God will complete the good work that he started in me. I am free from condemnation and I am God's masterpiece. And we're gonna spend the week with these. So take one of these on your way out and my challenge is to each morning pick one for the next five days. Write it out, look it up and write it out by hand and then spend the day. You could have a three by five card, you could have something, whatever it is, keep it with you and spend the day mulling it over and watch as God's truth slowly transforms us from the inside out, as we start living the way that we know we actually are, as we choose to trust in the voice of God and what he has said because the well-punctuated life listens to the voice of God and trusts what he has said about us. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are righteous. You are righteous, not because of what you have or haven't done, but because of who you know and what he has done for you. You are not theoretically righteous. It is not a cheat sheet on a test or some sort of grade on a curve. It is actually righteous because Jesus has died on the cross and he has paved the way and he has made you righteous. God has said it is so and it is so. And it is a pleasure for me to know you. Let's pray. Lord God, I am, I am so grateful this morning 
this was a message that I needed to hear. I found myself beforehand crying as I, as I worked my way through it because so often I don't believe this. And your truth, your gospel, it is so beautiful. And my, my heart is different. And I am grateful for that. So Lord, this morning, I pray that you would make this truth a reality for us. Today, tomorrow, in the coming week, as we work through these verses together, would you make this a reality? And would you slowly start to bring the internal reality that you have made inside of us into our external living reality? We thank you for Jesus, for his death on the cross, and for the fact that we get to be men and women after your heart. And we thank you for all of this in the name and the power of Jesus. Amen.